I see up here that there's a, a book, Josh McDowell, The Resurrection Factor, and I'm guessing that's the book of the month, is it? Maybe. So there should be quite a few copies down there if you want to get ready for uh, the Easter. Uh, go down to the book room and get a copy, and it'll help you think through the, uh, the evidence which uh, backs the, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ beyond reasonable doubt, written by Josh McDowell. Well, what causes fights? What causes quarrels? Just think about in your workplace. Or think about in your family. What causes fights in your family? Or maybe in your marriage. Maybe even in churches. What causes that? I mean, tragically, there have been churches that have just got into such bitter disputes and tensions that they have just split up and separated. Now, what's going on? Now, superficially, it's often easy to point out what's happened, isn't it? Um, He said or did this to her. Uh, She was so upset by what he said that she fires back some thoughts of her own uh, back at him. And uh, the conflict builds. Uh, these two people are in tension together. And then uh, th- what happens is that uh, they assume that everything they do from that point on uh, has some evil motive. Uh, they assume the worst of each other. And it's a descending spiral of problems. And then they invite uh, people to uh, hear what terrible things that other person had done. And to join their team. That's the superficial way that conflict happens, isn't it? But what's really going on under the surface? Well, what does God have to say to us about this? Well, uh, we have a perfect passage to look at in James chapter 4. So let's open your Bibles to James chapter 4. And you'll find this on page 1215 in the church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, one, two, one, five. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet. But you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near 
to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, this is God's word. Keep it open. Uh, I want to acknowledge right from the outset that uh, I've been very helped this past week by some articles by the Christian Counseling Education Fellowship, CCEF, and uh, this is one of their favorite passages, James 4, they dig in, and there's a a couple of great articles that I read this week. I've posted them on my pastor's blog if you want to go back to the original source, but I should only rightly acknowledge that. What we're going to do here is we're going to analyze what's really going on under the surface of conflict. James is is like a good doctor. He's not happy with just sort of dealing with the superficial symptoms. He wants to go to the underlying heart condition that drives it all. And what we need to understand about uh, human conflict is that it's a spiritual matter. That when human conflict is going on, it is because we have a worship problem. We're not worshiping God as we ought. So I want us to think about the process uh, that goes on in conflict. And there's kind of four stages that uh, James highlights in this passage. I just want to draw it out from the passage first. The first stage is I desire. I desire. Look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Conflict always begins with this. I desire something. Uh, there's something I would like. It, it could be something evil and wicked, or more than likely, it might be something completely innocent and uh, you know, no, no, nothing wrong with it in itself. Um, we desire to have some peace and quiet. We desire to have a tidy house. Uh, we desire to have some success at work. We desire to have a, a, a warmer, uh, more intimate relationship in our marriage. We, we uh, desire to have respectful children. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with desires like that. But what happens? What happens when we've shared those desires and the response that comes back is indifference? Our desires are unmet. Now that's where conflict can begin. And we stand at that point at a crossroads. We desire something and it's not happening and we stand at the crossroads. And there's basically two two, uh, paths we can choose. I mean, one path, which is the path of grace, is that we, um, we say, well... I'm going to trust God. I'm going to find my fulfillment in Him. My desire is frustrated here, but I'm going to turn to God and I'm going to find my satisfaction in Him. So the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Earth has nothing I desire besides you, says the psalmist. Now that's the way of grace, isn't it? To find our delight in God. And and, uh, we can ask God to continue to grow and mature us through um, our trial. Even if our, for instance, if it's a marriage issue, if our spouse uh, is, is not really uh, responding. We can see our trials as joyfully, uh, as a way that God is growing our faith. We could continue to love our spouse and we could pray for God's sanctifying work in their lives. And that is the route that God says, if you go down that route, there are so many great promises of God that he will make you more like Jesus. That you'll get grace and strength. That's, that's the route where he, he, there's these wonderful, precious promises that we're going to go on and consider a little bit later. But of course, as we stand at that crossroads of unmet desires, there's another route, isn't it? There's another way that we can go. We could dwell on the disappointment. We can uh, go into self-pity. We can stoke up bitterness in our hearts towards the other person. Um, And if this downward spiral continues and continues, we we can destroy a marriage. And that's simply with two people uh, who have different, perhaps conflicting desires. Now, imagine that in a church of 600 members. There is a potential in a church of 600 plus members that we um, have like hundreds of competing uh, desires. You know, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with those desires. We have different preferences, don't we? We have different preferences about buildings, about music, about instruments, uh, I mean, about how we spend money. There's so many ways that we could have different views. But unless we come with humble dependence upon the Lord, we are sitting on a powder keg of conflict, aren't we? Potentially. And the root that brings us problems is when what I desire turns into what I demand. You know, as those unmet um, desires fester inside of us, um, we come to realize that this is not simply something I want. This is something I need. This is something I must have. This is something I deserve. How many times have we thought something like this? I've worked hard all week. Don't I deserve a little peace and quiet? I've I've made many sacrifices for you. Don't I deserve some respect? I worked hard to bring the money in and and I, I want and I deserve that new thing. Whether it's the new iPad or the new mobile phone or the, the new car. I mean, I bring the money to us and I, and I want it. And the problem really comes when our desire turns into demand. The Bible calls that making an idol. We've made an idol. An idol is anything apart from God that we uh, depend upon to be happy, to be fulfilled. 
to be secure. It's when we place, uh, when we set our hearts really on something else in the place of God. That's what happens when our desires turn into demands. And uh, it is a sure sign that we've got an idol in our hearts, that, we, that this is what is motivating us. Uh, this is what uh, is ruling over us, uh, that we're driven along by this demand. And it so easily happens to us. Our hearts so quickly latch on to uh, what we demand. And uh, by making idols, Calvin called the human heart a, 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 a factory that makes idols constantly. And notice with me how destructive it is to human relationships, because the next stage is I judge. Look at verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? When our unmet desires turn into demands and that person really isn't coming through for us the way we think that they must do. Well, we know what's really going on inside their hearts. We are well aware of their deficiencies. Uh, We become judges. Uh, so quickly, um, our frustration turns into criticism and condemnation of that other person. And it just welds up in our hearts. And yet, James says, who are you? Who are you to judge your, your spouse, your neighbor, your friend, the church member? When we judge others criticizing them, nitpicking at them, condemning them. We are literally playing God, James says. There is only one lawgiver and judge. That's God. So when we climb um, onto the, uh, the judge's seat and start pronouncing about other people, we actually have pushed God off the throne in our lives. We are usurping God's place. I want to suggest to you that is very serious. But we never think it is serious when we start sort of talking about other people. We never think about it in that way, but that's that what James is saying. It is the next stage in this destructive process. I desire, I demand, I, uh, I judge. And actually, we're setting ourselves up to be um, co-conspirators with the devil. Because what does the devil do? The devil is the accuser of the brethren. The devil is the father of lies. He's the one who loves to engage in stirring up conflict and disunity. And, uh, and, and actually, as we, um, as we engage in slanderous words, as we engage in words that are nitpicking and condemning and criticizing, actually, uh, we've joined the devil's team, James says. And then the next stage is I punish. This is where it finally ends. See, idols demand sacrifices and uh, we have ways to make other people pay. It's Mother's Day. Um, It's not a great text, Hosea 2 for Mother's Day, I do apologize, but it does fit in (laughs) with James chapter 4. So it's Mother's Day, and and really every parent who's got two or three children knows what this is like. It happens 
if not every day, every week in, in the house. One child uh, desires something that they do not have. And it so happens that the brother or the sister has that very thing, but will not share it. What happens at that exact point? Does, does the child humbly say, that's okay. It's such a wonderful thing. I'd like you to play with it. And when you're finished, if you could pass it on to me, that would just be super. Is that what happens? If it happens in your house, write a book and tell us how you did it. Now what happens is fighting. Uh, shouting. Quarreling. Grabbing. Pushing. Shoving. Tantrums and tears. And even though we kind of get a bit bigger, as adults, we find more civilized ways of doing exactly the same thing. We find ways that uh, we can hurt other people, that we can make them pay until they give way to our desires. Um, we can do uh, forms of what children do. We can um, pout and stomp. We can give dirty looks to hurt people. I love it when kids do that. Well, I mean, not really, but it always makes me laugh when kids do that. We punish by withdrawing from people, from withholding our affection. By maybe we'll refuse to look at them. I won't even look you in the eye. I want. I want you to. Feel pain. I'm punishing you. Maybe we lash out with our tongues. Uh, James already said our tongues can be like poison and we can be like a spitting cobra that, that just fires venom at people to weaken and to damage them. Maybe we just get angry. We just get enough anger that actually people start getting intimidated that maybe some physical violence may happen here. Because we want our idol. We want it satisfied. And James points to the extreme in verse 2, doesn't he? You want something but don't get it. You kill and you covet. Make no bones about it. This uh, process is a continuum that leads to murder. And tragically... Um, there have been cases of those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus but have so made an idol of their desire that they've been willing to murder their spouse. This is the end point of uncontrolled, sinful, selfish desires. This is the nature of conflict. And if you right now are engaged in any sort of way where you're trying to hurt somebody, whether you're... Uh, self-consciously or consciously, you're actually trying to bring pain to someone, you should know that that is a pretty strong indicator that you have an idol at the center of your heart. Something that is not God. And see, this is the more serious issue here. Our conflict with others reveals that we're in conflict with God. It reveals that we've got a worship problem. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping this idol that we've set up, this demand that must be met. And the evidence of that is prayerlessness in verse 2. You do not 
uh, have because you do not ask God. And if we get round to prayers, our prayers are kind of very selfish, self-orientated prayers where we're saying, uh, not your will, God, but my will be done on this, please. And what does James have to say? It's very strong in verse 4. You adulterous people. In the original, it's adulteresses. He's writing to believers, isn't he? He's writing to brothers, sisters in Christ. And yet, he writes this tough, wake-up line. Adulteresses. That's the language of the Old Testament. That's what we saw in Hosea chapter 2. It was painful reading, wasn't it? And God tells Hosea to marry this uh, woman who's got a a track record of not being particularly faithful to her men, to marry her, and then she is unfaithful to him. And and, and the Lord is saying to Hosea, and through Hosea, uh, the pain that you are going through is the pain that I feel as your covenant-keeping God when you've broken the marriage covenant this, this not marriage covenant. You've broken this covenant with me. And when we make idols in our hearts, we are becoming spiritual adulterers. That's what we're doing. We're saying of our desires that you, you're the thing that makes me happy. You're the thing that makes me fulfilled. You're the thing that gives me security. You are what I want. And how we grieve God when we do that. Just read through the book of Hosea and see the grief that God has as he sees an adulterous people who constantly are unfaithful to him in the covenant where he has only shown them good. Of course, what we're doing when we pursue these tactics of judging and punishing, we're showing that we're just lining ourselves up with a God-rejecting world. That's what he goes on to say, verse 4. Anyone who chooses to be, uh, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you see how serious this is? He can say to this Christian church, you are becoming enemies with God. That, 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 that's a wake up. That's sobering. And what, you know, what if we came to that crossroads of unmet desires and we walked down that pathway of I desire, I demand, I judge, and I punish? What if we've been doing that for years? And these words are true of us that we've become, we're becoming a friend of the world, an enemy of God, we're becoming adulterous people. What hope is there? And that's why verse uh, 6 is so precious. The hope is the hope of grace, isn't it? That lovely, beautiful phrase in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. Here's the hope for spiritual adulterers. Here's the hope for idol makers. He gives us more grace. Grace. That's what thrills our hearts as Christians, isn't it? Because... The sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. The Lord Jesus came and uh, took my place. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he considered the next day, there was a sort of a, a, a breakdown in composure. 
It was an overwhelming thought for Jesus to, to drink God's punishment that my sin deserved and that he would drink it, that he would take my place. And yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. That is glorious grace. Now, verse 5 is one of the toughest verses in James to interpret, and it could be translated in, in one of two ways. Um, it could be, as the NIV says it, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, and that's a legitimate way to translate it. And that makes verse 5 as kind of the culmination of all this spiritual pathology, of all of what is wrong with our human spirit. But it could be translated as the English Standard Version translates it. That God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And on balance, I think it's probably the, the latter. Our hope as spiritual adulterers is in a jealous God. A God who desires to have a faithful bride. That's our hope. Zechariah 8 verse 2 says this. uh, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. And it's God's jealous love for his faithless bride that caused him to pursue her and win her love. Now turn back to Hosea chapter 2. It's on page 901. Keep your finger in James. Page 901, Hosea 2. And after very harsh language... We get to verse 14. Therefore, well, it could mean it's all over. Therefore, it's all over. But it's not what it says. He gives more grace. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. He's going to try and woo his wife back, his faithless wife. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. It's going to give her gifts. Verse 15, they'll give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Look at verse 19. I will betroth you to me Forever, I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. There's our hope. As we look at the mess made of our idolatrous, unfaithful hearts, it is that we have a jealous God who is at work to create a faithful church and a people who properly worship him. He gives more grace. Charles Wesley wrote this beautiful hymn. Oh, Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin. Isn't that beautiful? He is more full of grace than I am full of sin. Yet once again I seek your face. Open your arms and take me in and freely my backslidings heal and love the faithless sinner still. There's our hope. But before we sing that hymn, we've got to see that there's an essential requirement, isn't it? Did you see it in verse 6? 
What's the essential requirement? What do we need to do to be recipients of this grace? What does it say? Some of you are not looking at your Bibles. You're not going to find the answer looking into the air. But uh, we have to humble ourselves, don't we? We have to humble ourselves. John Stott wrote this, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. There's more grace. It's freely available. That's the nature of grace. There's more grace than our sin. But we must humble ourselves to be recipients of that grace. And verses 7 to 10, uh, James spells out what that looks like. The action steps, as it were, that's that's tied into this whole idea of humbling ourselves. Uh, Verse 7, humbling yourself means submitting yourself to God and resisting the devil. So when we're engaging in fights and quarrels, say in church, we're doing the exact opposite to that, aren't we? We are submitting to what the devil wants. And we are resisting God. And uh, we are putting ourselves uh, into the puny place of judgment, uh, saying that we know what's going on in other people's hearts. And, and humility is to repent of all that nonsense. To submit ourselves to God is to put ourselves under His Lordship and commit ourselves to obey Him in all things. And what we're doing, in a sense, our hearts, when we are, have made an idol, the demand is like this idol in our heart that's sitting on the throne of our lives. And uh, as we submit ourselves to God, we're pushing that off the throne. And we're saying, God alone should be on that throne in my heart. Come near to God, verse 8. He'll come near to you. What does it mean to draw near to God? Well, he spells it out in verse 8. It means um, washing your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is about repentance. It is to repent of the sins of our hands and the double-mindedness of our hearts that got us into this mess. That when we got to that uh, crossroad junction that we so quickly shot down the wrong path. It is to humbly repent, perhaps, of the ways that we've inflicted pain and hurt on others. To humbly repent of the ways that we've judged falsely and got into the place of God. We need to wash our hands and purify our hearts. We need to mourn. Look at verse 9. Grieve, mourn. And wail. These are, these are imperatives. These are commands. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Have you ever had that moment where you've come up close and suddenly realized what your words and actions have really done? Have you come close to a holy God and realized the horror of it, the ugliness of it? The only right response is to mourn. To grieve before God that you've acted in that way. Do you remember the precious promise that the Lord Jesus gave to those who mourn? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted. 
And there are so many precious promises here for those who will humbly submit themselves to God. That as we resist the devil, he's going to flee. That as we draw near to God, he will come near to us in our lives and in our church. And that if we humble ourselves, verse 10, he will lift us up. I think um, um, Liam even mentioned this earlier in his prayer. The parable of the prodigal son. And this is that beautiful image of the father, isn't it? As, as the son finally repents and turns around and heads for home, the dad has been observing and watching for this moment of repentance. And as soon as he sees him, he rushes to him and he says, give him the best robe, give him the best ring, kill the fatty calf, we're going to party, we're going to celebrate. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, our problems in human conflict stem from a worship problem. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping our idolatrous desires. And the solution in human conflict is first to have restored worship with God, to come near to God, to repent and humble ourselves before him. And the the point is, when that happens, then we become those who are humble before others. And that is the hope in conflict, isn't it? It's the humble solution if we will humble ourselves. Now, what happens in a conflict? What happens in the conflict is I become really aware of all your deficiencies, all your problems, and I'm just so aware of how self-righteously right I am. Can't see any problems with that. It's all them. That's what happens, isn't it? So we need to repent, mourn, humble ourselves. Let's bow our heads. Let's take a moment to reflect on this for our own lives. Maybe you're standing at the crossroads of unmet desires today. What will you do? Will you listen to God's word? Maybe you're well down the path of proud conflict. Will we listen to God's word this morning and do what it says? Do we need to repent before God this morning and find ways to restore that relationship with that person that's been in your mind and thoughts as we've talked about this? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you Let's close by encouraging ourselves from these uh, wonderful words.